off uh, last session on page 68 in my book. We're in the chapter on the church and the tribulation, talking about will the church go through the tribulation. We went through about seven uh, reasonings why uh, this author does not feel that we will. And again, there's a lot of, as we learned last session, there's a lot of opinions about that. But I, uh, I believe even Jesus, you know, he, he wants us out of here before all, can I say it, all hell breaks loose down here on, on earth and all these vials and, and seals are opened and uh, stuff. So that's kind of, we here at the house, we, we believe in pre-trib. And uh, so we're going to dive off in here a little bit more tonight and uh, look at the tribulation. It's, uh, it's, it's not going to be pretty. We're going to find out tonight, you know, uh, as you read the book of Revelation, uh, Colin and I were just talking some about it. You know, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he saw these things as clearly as, as you and I, you know, are seeing these chairs here. I mean, he was lost in the Spirit. He wrote to the, to the seven churches early on. Terry has done an excellent study of those seven churches just uh, not that long ago. But uh, then he goes in in Revelation 4, verse 1 on. He said, come up hither, and I'll show you things to come. So that's kind of from there on. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going to be happening as you read the book of Revelation. And the tribulation is going to be part of it. You know, there, there's going to be the, it's going to be divided into the first three and a half years and the last three and a half years, as, as we'll see here. I think we go through that a little bit here. But let's... Uh, Let's dive off in here a little bit. Uh, he says in his discourse on the Mount of Olives in answer to the particular questions of the disciples, the master himself mentions the coming of an unparalleled time of tribulation, Matthew 24, and again also in Matthew 25. Uh, a lot of people here, it talks about that they thought that was just referring to Jerusalem around AD 70, but it definitely has uh, greater implications than than just that. So uh, there's two prophets that saw it also. Uh, Jeremiah, he saw this long before uh, even John the Revelator did. In Jeremiah 30, verse 4 through 9, the prophet has a vision of the ultimate deliverance of Israel from the yoke of foreign nations and of their restoration, I like that word, to divine favor. But immediately before this is realized, he sees the nation passing through the time of Jacob's trouble. So that's kind of his reference to the tribulation. He uses the term, the time of Jacob's trouble. Ezekiel, of course we know uh, Ezekiel 37, 38, there's several different places, but he sees the same ends later on, the, the great man of God, accomplished by a process of purging the rebellious element of the nation from around the true hearted as they, quote, pass under the rod. Well, eventually, we're going to see that play out, aren't we? I mean, as I mentioned at the start, God's going to vindicate uh, the righteous, and He's going. There's going to be a penalty, and that's a pattern, through, you know, from Old Testament to New Testament to even present day. You know, I was actually talking with my granddaughter today, driving to to Weatherford and working out that direction. She rode with Papa, and we were talking about that. That you can get by with, you know, there's people who get by with sins and stuff. And it doesn't look like God's a God of judgment at all. But eventually, it all comes down, doesn't it? You may, you may steal from somebody 10, 20, 30, 40 times, but eventually you're going to get caught. Yeah. Go ahead. The, the, uh, you know, you've heard you know, the bill comes due. Whether in this life or the next, the bill will always come due. Whatever you reap. sow, you will reap accordingly. Yeah. So if you reap sin, or if you sow sin, you will reap death. If you sow life, you will reap life. Um, Good point. So whether and it, you know, uh, in reference to people that I personally know who I know are not walking a godly life, it's like I whenever I pray, I'm like, Lord, please let them let the, let their sins come, let the bill come due before death, so that they're not facing an eternity, but rather just a short. A short recompense here, and be and be restored to faith yeah. here, and 
face eternity in, of life instead of an eternity of death. Amen. Yeah, now's the time to, I think that's the reason all of us as preachers are feeling it so strong. You know, we have, since the start of the year, I've preached on it, I don't know how many times, about church, get ready. Church matters. You know, Terry, uh, the dangers of revival and, and calling, different ones, it's, uh, we're feeling the, the urgency in our spirit. We, again, don't know the day nor the hour. No one does. And yet we know that one day could be tomorrow. It may be, you know, again, God in his infinite wisdom and grace and mercy may give us, uh, you know, another 20 years. I don't know. He knows, but stay ready, right? <laughs> Colin said, and I'm not knocking his blessed wisdom, but I, uh, I just pray for the Lord's Spirit and everybody I see. Amen. They've got the Spirit. Everything else is done. Everything else is cleaned. Everything else is, is washed out. I mean, that's just my take. Good deal. So he talks here, you know, Ezekiel 20. We're on page 69. Both passages are references to the tribulation. Daniel also is another uh, great man of God that had some revelation regarding the end time. 12.1 has a specific reference to this time of trouble in the end of the age when the heavenly host led by Michael the archangel takes up the struggle against Israel's enemies, both visible and invisible. So anyway, then in the Bible you also you'll see the word the day of the Lord. Anybody ever been reading and see that, that uh, not the word, but that phrase, the the day of the Lord, you know, it sometimes refers to a more immediate judgment of the Lord nearer the prophet's day, but as the context clearly shows, often comprehends a more remote judgment just preceding the time of Israel's restoration. This day of the Lord is the tribulation period. And again, I know we've read that several times as we've uh, studied the word. So the length of the tribulation uh, period, uh, Daniel 9 24 through 27, we know that it's, it's going to be three and a half years, as we mentioned earlier, than another, what we call the Great Tribulation. You thought, thought it was bad the first three and a half? Well, hang on. Amen. Here, here we go. Here we go. So, uh, uh, this period was designed of God to finish Israel's transgressions, to make an end of their national sin, Zechariah 13, 1, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to fulfill all prophecy. So this period of 777 is 490 years. John talked about that last session, the, uh, Daniel's uh, 70th weeks, was to begin with the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. So this stretch of 490 years was to be divided into three periods of seven sevens, 49 years, 62 sevens, 434 years, and then one seven. Everybody's kind of familiar with that. The, the last seven is the one that, that, that's going to be fulfilled when we, again, go through all these things happening here upon the earth. The end of the first period marked the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem after their captivity in Babylon. And then the end of the further period of 62 sevens is marked by, of course, the rejection of Christ by the Jewish nation at the time of his triumphal entry and then his subsequent crucifixion. So anyway, a lot of, a lot of stuff there. Uh, so this, if you add those up, this leaves one seven-year uh, course yet, yet to be run. So what will happen during this period? How many of you here has read Revelation at least once, twice, maybe three times? And again, Colin and I had a great discussion going here before some of y'all got here about, you know, all the stuff that's, that is going to be happening with the vials and the seals and the horses and the man-child and the red-clothed, uh, uh, sun-clothed woman and, and all of this that's, that's going to be happening that John truly saw, and you can... I would encourage you if, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm more of a pastor, if I've said many times, my goal as a pastor and first of all as an evangelist was I want you to be ready. And, and Jesus, that's what he said, you know, he said don't worry about the times and the seasons and all of these things, just watch, number one, and be ready for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man 
will come. But if you if you want you know something to really if you want to dive into this and and John has I know and Colin I think has done some too. Uh, I encourage you to. John G. Hall has uh, some some great books. Castile, I believe it is, has some great books that that will really uh, uh, go in depth. We're not going to. Uh, we could spend another you know five weeks, five sessions trying to peel through the layers of all this. So tonight we're just going to hit the hit some of the highlights about the Antichrist uh, in the latter part of Daniel 11. Uh, it's recorded the rise to power in the last days of a great ruler who is the king. This is none other than the Antichrist, who is in blasphemous self-exaltation and lawless disregard for all established order, tradition, and religious standards by his military genius and wealth, gains the ascendancy over Syria, Egypt, Palestine, and establishes himself in Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Apostate Jews will yield him allegiance, but a faithful remnant. Isn't that what we've learned through this whole book? A faithful remnant will be loyal to God. It's amazing what God can do with a faithful remnant. Amen? Over and over again. That Right, right now, we've had three great successes in the Supreme Court, have we not? Just in the last, in the last week. Why? Because the faithful remnant remnant the true church of jesus christ has been praying we've been on our face before god and you know it's, it's taken 49 almost 50 years but god has heard the cries and the prayers and he's you know a lot of people thought it would never happen how many's ever heard that it'll never happen yeah and bam one day here here it came you know so Again, but God, right? <laughs> God and a faithful remnant. Look out. You got something to be. You know, God has proven himself, you know, over and over. Gideon is a true picture. You know, he had too many men. <laughs> he had 100, what, 120,000 or something. No, all of them that drink water. Down to 30, 20,000, 30,000. No, that's still too many. Gets down to, what, 300 people. And God, okay, you know, now I can work. Now I can, I can show my power, you know, so... Again, it, it will happen. Never discount the size of God in any matter. Amen? Never discount what he can do. Oh, that's a word for somebody tonight. You may be facing something that, that just seems rough, and you, you don't know how in the world you're going to get over it, but just stop and look and see how big God is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So, uh, this is going on. This will take place in the latter half of Daniel's 70th, 70th week of seven years. John saw this same period as Daniel in his vision. It's amazing how hundreds of years apart, they both saw the same thing in a little bit different way, a little bit different description, where Israel is revealed symbolically as the sun-clothed, star-crowned woman from whom the man-child Christ is born. This same intervention of Michael in Israel's behalf in the last days when the war in heaven takes place. It's the same chronological period as Daniel 12, 7. This spiritual conflict is to defeat Satan and to preserve the woman from destruction. This is Satan's final effort, hallelujah, to do away with God's chosen people during the millennium. So that's the end of, in my book, chapter 5. I think some of y'all have chapters that uh, are not the same as mine. So, the underworld. How many know there's an underworld? <laughs> Definitely uh, down there, huh? So, we're going to look a little at some of this tonight in the underworld about Sheol and Hades and some of these different terms for hell. Uh, we'll start here on page 75. Any questions so far on... I want us to take a minute. How many of you still have your... Uh, Test. Do you have your test tonight? Okay. Do you have yours, Jen? Or Jeff? Okay. All right. Uh, if somebody will run back there, how many we need? Three copies? I think this is... Yeah, there, there we go. It's two pages. Run us... Uh, 
three, three or four copies. I'll just hold up. We'll start talking a little bit about uh, Sheol and Hades here while he's doing that, and then we'll uh, try, try to get caught up. I thought this afternoon we haven't done those the last three or four sessions, so we need to get everybody kind of caught up. Good to have John and Jen back. Hallelujah. It's good to go and refresh, but we miss you for sure. There you go. Your stuff looks brighter and shinier, doesn't it? Your bed, there you go. Okay, there's two words. The Hebrew word is Sheol in the Old Testament. We know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Greek for the New Testament, and the Greek word is Hades, which are identical in meaning and exactly equivalent. Both of these words, and here's the key thing, mean the underworld or the place of departed spirits. Where did they go until Jesus ascended? This is where they went, right? And there was a, uh, the righteous were on one side and the, the, the wicked were on the other side. And, of course, we know the story there of the rich man and the, and the beggar. Remember that? That's a kind of uh, bears out. And I think he mentions this here at some point in the, in the text here. But uh, it was, uh, one, was, one was in a, in a nice place and the other one was in a terrible place. He said, just please dip, dip your finger in this water and just let a drop of it fall on my tongue for I'm tormented in these flames. Hell is a place of torment. Hell is a place of beauty and splendor and uh, getting to hang out with Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Hallelujah. So, all right. But yeah, let's go ahead now and uh, we'll get caught up on some of, some of these answers here for you. Number one, we'd already hit, I think, the first three or four, but since we, it's been a long time since we did anything on this uh, on this test so if you're listening later tonight uh, Lisa or or uh, Dan we're going to go through our test here we go number one on ages and dispensations what is the meaning of the word dispensation that's on page three in my book as found in the New Testament uh, the different classes of people God addresses in the scriptures the various periods or ages marked off by the Lord for the accomplishing of his purposes. Y'all need a pen. I mean, I've got it. I've got it at home. Oh, do, okay, 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 I got you. Okay, all right. I'll say that again. The different classes of people God addresses in the scriptures, the various periods or ages, Ages and dispensations, right? Marked off by the Lord for the accomplishing of his purposes. All right, name the three main ages within the scope of time. Anybody remember that? Antediluvian. Present. Present. And the age to come. Yeah, you were on a you were on a different thought there. <laughs> yeah, the antediluvian. Everybody knows what that means, right? Before the before, but huh? Uh, the last one is antediluvian present, and then the age to come, or you can put in parentheses millennium. Yeah, millennium. Now this is for a hundred bonus points. Name the seven dispensations. First dispensation was the dispensation of innocence, right? Mm-hmm. The second was the dispensation of law. Nope. No. Conscience. Conscience. That's what it is. Uh, then the dispensation of law. Nope. Human government. Mosaic. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that I, I call that one the dispensation of law because of the Mosaic law. Right. But it's human government. Um, then Abraham was promise. Dispensation of promise. That's number four. And then law. And then the law. Oh. And okay. then grace. And then divine government. Everybody get those? I'll do them one more time here. 
Okay, innocence. Man was put here to rule and reign forever, right? Beautiful, everything was wonderful, just peachy peachy. Yeah, till the little serpent came along. And then in chapter 3 of Genesis, we go, we move the moment man and woman decided to follow Satan. We went into conscience instantly. We moved from innocence to conscience. And then human government. And then promise with Abraham. And then law with Moses. Grace with Jesus. Hallelujah. And then divine government with God forever and forever. Hallelujah. Ruling. He's going to rule and reign. Okay, number four. How is God's love seen in what followed the fall? This is on page 25 and 26 in my book. Starts at the bottom of 25 and then runs over to 26. The promise of a redeemer. And in the provision of coats of skins to cover their nakedness. What does the coat of skins in typology apply to today? Atonement. The righteous covering, yeah, the atonement, the atonement of God. Hallelujah. So I'll read that again. The answer to number four, the promise of a redeemer and in the provision of coats of skins to cover their nakedness. The skin typifies his righteousness and covering. It's on page 25, 26. Page 34, question number five. How did the dispensation of conscience end? With divine intervention and the judgment, of course, of the flood. We know that that started the, the next dispensation of human government, right? That's when they tried to build the, you know, right at the end of that, the Tower of Babel and, and all of that. So. so with divine intervention and the judgment of the flood, which lasted one year and ten days. Got it? Number six. This is on page 36. How did Noah properly begin the new era of human government from a religious standpoint? That's it. With, uh, here's the, the book thing, but basically what Colin said is he built an altar. With a proper understanding of the sacrificial way of approach to God. Noah built an altar to Jehovah and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Say it one more time. With a proper understanding of the sacrificial way of approach to God, Noah built an altar to Jehovah and offered burnt offerings on that altar. Don't remember studying that, right? <laughs> what man was a central figure in the beginning? Of the dispensation of promise. Abraham. Cha-ching. Easy answer there. Number eight. Give two scriptures to show the purpose of the law. And one to show the relationship between the dispensation of law and grace. So there's two. There's three blanks here. First, you can put card A if you want to. And the first two is Exodus 19. It tells all about it. And Exodus 24. 9 through 18. Those are the two that are in your book, but one that I really like that explains the, the purpose of the law is in the New Testament. Galatians 3, 19 through 26. Do y'all want to read that, or do y'all remember that? Okay. Where are you? Hallelujah. I, I put in parentheses, this is a bonus scripture. It's not in your book, but... It definitely explains it to where you can you can understand the purpose. It was just a postponement, wasn't it? You say Galatians three nineteen, right? Uh huh. 
319. Who's going to read it to me? Through 26. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring could come to, come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies, implies more than one, but God is one. Um, is a law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith, be, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law with, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer ju- under a guardian. Ooh. Yes. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Is that through 26? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and Paul uses another term. Anybody heard the term schoolmaster? That's another term. It was a schoolmaster. It was teaching man to know what is wrong and right, but it was a, really uh, all the blood of the bullocks and goats and pigeons and all that. That was just postponement of, our, of their sins until the real sacrificial lamb laid down his life once and for all for all of mankind amen number nine it's on page 49 how was god's dealings in grace made possible by the death of jesus which provided the new and living way of access to the throne of grace can i go into the throne room tonight do I have the key, Brother John? <laughs> Hallelujah. Keys to the kingdom, amen? Hallelujah. We have, we can boldly, Hebrews says, walk right in and approach God anytime we want to. So that's on page 49. Number 10, give three scriptures showing that the church is to be the bride of Christ. We went over, John uh, taught this uh, last time we met, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Ephesians 5, 27, Revelation 19, 7 through 9. One more time, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Ephesians 5, 27, Revelation 19, 7 through 9. There you go. And I think this, is, this next one will catch us up. What is the logical conclusion regarding the time of the rapture? If the saints are to come with Christ and rule with him. That's on page 65. Pre-trib is the answer there. Pre-trib or before the tribulation, we will be caught out of here. Okay. Uh, We're fixing to get into this some here, I think. Yeah, number 12, that's on page 73. Actually, we'll know. Yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and hit some of this. So on page 73, we just went over that, actually, a little bit of it. Uh, At the very close of the tribulation, there will be plagues. Jerusalem will be encompassed with the armies of the Antichrist. Israel calls on God once again, and the Lord will manifest himself as their personal deliverer, take vengeance on their enemies, judge the nations, and set up his millennial kingdom so that's about the last if you didn't get all that you can go back and write it down later but it's about the last uh, where is that about the last part of yeah, the last paragraph of chapter 5 okay so we're caught up everybody happy yay okay let's go back in here into chapter 6 then and back to the underworld a little bit we just mentioned of course, Sheol is in the Old Testament. Hades in the New Testament. That's the word in Greek, uh, the place of departed spirits. What is the underworld? The true and only meaning is a place of departed spirits, souls which have left the body, whether in bliss or in torment. We just talked about that. Some went to the bliss. Some went to the torment. You leave this earth one way or the other, right? Is that the delineation between Hades and Sheol? 
Sheol is the bliss and Hades is the torment? No, they both, they both are just still one compartment. Place, one, okay. Place of that. Up, place, until, up until Christ. Up until Christ. Yeah. Okay, all right. Place of departed spirits. It encompassed the whole, the whole uh, canyon or <laughs> the whole whatever. Um, so, again, we choose which place we go to, don't we? We choose. And okay, so Sheol is basically just the Hebrew word, word yep. for it, and Hades is the Greek word. The Greek word. That's okay. it, totally. Much confusion and even her- heresy would have been avoided were it not for the fact that our authorized English translation inconsistently uses several words as translations of these two expressions, Sheol and Hades. They are translated hell, grave, pit, Abaddon, Abasus, Abbas. As examples of passages where these two words are found, see Isaiah 14, 9, hell, or Sheol, from beneath is moved for thee at thy coming. Luke 16, 23, and in hell, Hades, he lifts up his eyes, being in torment. So apparently the authorized uh, English translation caused a lot of misunderstandings of these words. So we're going to look at, look at this a little bit more. Of course, we know there's Gehenna, there's Abbas, there's so many other different words and I, and I can see where it would be you know confusing Hades or Sheol's is a described in scripture as a somber world and place of detention and waiting it's exactly what was happening to Abraham and Moses Isaiah Jeremiah do you think that could be the source of what Catholics call purgatory that idea of Sheol being a place of waiting could be. That may be where they get their analogy. Yeah, could be. That they're taking that and not taking into consideration that in the dis- that we're in the dispensation of grace, not the dispensation of the law. Mm-hmm. And so they're applying the old idea of Sheol where there is a place of waiting and sanctification or purification that leads to uh, glorification. Could be. John, you got any comment on that? Okay, all right, okay, that's it. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh! Really? Yeah, the the words words are all the same, it just divides it into smaller parts. Wow, I knew John the other, when he taught last time, was saying something about chapter 8, and I was thinking, no, I think it's chapter 5 I wanted you to teach, but okay. So, but the wording is still... The wording is a lot still the same. I got you. I got you. But anyway, he was talking about purgatory. Son, of course, we know, uh, again, everybody saved or unsaved went. You know, as I said, Abraham, all the great prophets, they went there in this place of just waiting, waiting, waiting. And Jesus, when he died and the three days he was in the grave, what did he do? He goes to the Lord. To, to Hades, Sheol, and leads captivity captive and brings them back. Now they're in a different place. They're with him waiting the resurrection of their glorified bodies, you know. So, uh, again, I can see where there's a lot of, you know, confusion, confusion back then. Exactly. Probably so, yeah. So, uh, he references the beggar here is is spoken of as being carried into Abraham's bosom. <clears throat> There's another word for paradise in the old te- or a holding place in the Old Testament. The passing of a soul is designated as a descent or a going down. Uh, he uh, here's a, t- a deal here. I will go down into the grave, Queber, which is the Hebrew word for the grave, but Sheol. Whether he believes his son Joseph has preceded him. In the fourth, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are swallowed up alive by the opening earth, and they all went down alive into the pit Sheol. So it's somewhere down below the earth's surface. Would we agree? So someday somebody's going to, you know, some of these drillers, they go down, what, 20, 30,000 
feet, they may uh, <laughs> yeah, latch onto something. They, whoa, mama, what we got? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You talk about a gusher. <laughs> look out, look out. So it is, he goes on here in the next paragraph. Where is it? Somewhere beneath the earth. Ezekiel 31, 16, 18, uh, 32, 18. Samuel, when recalled by divine inner position and providence on the occasion of Saul's visit to the witch, remember that, the medium, to try to get to talk to Samuel. Uh, he came up out of the earth. So again, another reference. That's in 1 Samuel 28. So the relation of Christ to Hades into the paradise side of Hades. Keep that in mind. When Christ went down there, he didn't, he didn't get anybody on the other side, okay? He, he, went, he went to the, to the paradise side of Hades. And uh, this descent into Hades, the lowest parts of the earth, Ephesians 4, 9, was part of his redemptive work. By his descent into this region, he wrought a great change therein and in the whole condition of the pious dead from that time on. He announced his victory to the spirits imprisoned there. That's in 1 Peter 3, 18, 19. He brought out with himself all faithful souls and resurrected many of them. Can you imagine all of them, how Abraham and Moses and Noah and all of them, man, how happy they were to see him come down and say, come on, guys, let's, let's get out of here. Yeah, let's let's get out of here. I got a better place for you. Yeah, that, that's that's one one thing or one part of the story of the resurrection of Christ's resurrection that a lot of people don't don't remember or don't think about because it's not it's not really mentioned that much in the Bible, but it is in historical uh, historical documents that hundreds and hundreds of people were raised from the dead on the morning that Christ came out of the tomb. Hundreds of people yeah. just walked out of the grave. Yeah, gone. Yeah, and Exodus. Yeah, almost, almost as if the the those who were deemed faithful were resurrected with Christ and taken to heaven. Right then, with him. Right then. Yeah, maybe he was coming up from paradise and said, "Come on, y'all can go with us too." Yeah, you haven't. Know, here we go. Uh, good stuff. So the presence condition of Hades the paradise side of Hades is now empty <laughs> I like that the gates of Hades do not prevail against or shut in even temporary any of his saints O death where is thy sting I just used this at a funeral a couple weeks ago O Hades where is thy victory sting of death is gone amen Paul expresses the desire of every saint when he says to depart and be with Christ is far better. Christ is now in paradise above, hello, and the righteous dead go to be with him, at least in a relative sense, until they receive, their spirit man goes there, okay, until they receive the resurrection body at the full consummation of redemption. Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, he was caught up, <coughs> he said, into paradise, this is in decided contrast with the experience of the Old Testament saints who went down into Sheol there to be detained until Christ should win his great victory over Satan who had the power of death and the keys of that region should pass into his possession. I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Revelation 118. Hallelujah. Good stuff. Okay, now we're going to talk some about the Abbas and Gehenna. I referred to those a while ago. Uh, we'll jump down here. Uh, we're going to, these two, uh, this will give us a little greater understanding of some of the other passages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, we find the Hebrew word Abaddon, usually translated destruction. The word, however, refers to a locality as well as to the dire state of those who go there, not to something just abstract okay job 26 6 hell sheol is naked before him and destruction there you go there's that word abaddon has no covering <coughs> job 28 22 destruction abaddon and death say we have heard the fame thereof 
of wisdom with our ears. Psalms 88, 11, shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave or, their, or thy faithfulness in destruction, Abaddon? Proverbs 27, 20, hail, Sheol, and destruction, Abaddon, are never full. Do you see the differences in these two? All right. So the Old Testament expression, Abaddon, is identical with the New Testament pit or abyss. That's where the devil's going to be thrown, right? The bottomless pit. The bottomless pit or abyss. And sometimes when I'm rebuking him, I'll say something like, I cast you back to the abyss, you know, forever and forever. I'm going to be there to watch you, you know, when you're completely annihilated, you know, type of stuff. When he's really fighting you, there's nothing wrong with telling him, hey, I think Terry even mentioned that, didn't he? Maybe Sunday night, something about that uh, he does that same thing. Uh, this region of Abaddon or the Abyss of the underworld seems to be what would correspond to the dungeon of a prison where the baser spirits of dead men, demon spirits, and other foul spirits of the lower order are for the most part held as melancholy prisoners until the final day of judgment. The demon spirits in the record uh, of Luke 8.31 besought the Lord. Remember this story with the maniac of Gadara? They sought the Lord that he would not send them to the deep, all right, to the abyss. From this dungeon hold there will be let loose upon the earth during the tribulation period myriads of those demon spirits who will torment mankind. They're coming from Abaddon, the abyss, right? We understand that. So, okay. It would seem then, you got something? Seems to be a lot of... Um, hmm demonic influence these days so might be getting pretty close to that yeah I'm telling you some of them has already slipped out of there haven't they <laughs> we got to cast them cast them out in the name of Jesus the church has got to come alive I mean there's no reason for any believer to be influenced oppressed and of course they can't I don't, truly do not believe a believer can be possessed but there's no reason for a believer to take anything off the devil amen I, I firmly believe that totally with everything within me you 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 fight him you know not with the weapons you know what did Paul say the weapons are our uh, warfare are not carnal but mighty through God not only to whooping on the devil but pulling down strongholds that he's tried to build in people's lives so we Again, give him no place. Okay, it would seem that this well pit or dungeon keep of the abbess is Coterminus. This is for 50 bonus points. And you know, anybody know what Coterminus means? C-O-T-E-R? All right. I had to look it up. <laughs> Same boundaries or coexistent. All right, you can write that in there coexistence or has the same boundaries with the great gulf which our Lord stated separated the righteous from the wicked in Hades in other words at the bottom of this great yawning gulf is this pit or abyss into which Satan will be cast when he's bound by the angel woo, at the beginning of the millennial age there in Revelation 20 and where demons have their abode and are now confined some of them and whether others are dismissed by the Lord when cast out at his command. I've put some in there. Hallelujah. Not only the Lord can cast out demons, amen. We can cast them out. So, Tophet. This is another uh, word here uh, that can refer to uh, the valley of the son of Heman and Gehenna. I know I remember studying that the Gehenna of fire. In Isaiah 30, 33, Jeremiah, there's uh, 7, 31, 32, there's references to Tophet in the valley. This Tophet is identical with the New Testament hell fire, literally Gehenna of fire. Anybody heard the word Gehenna? Would that, be, it, would that be um, the same as the lake of fire that Christ speaks of? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, Gehenna. It's found, yeah, in fact, Matthew 5. 22, 29, 30. He does use that 
Matthew 10, 23. Gehenna is the Grecian mode of spelling the Hebrew word, which are translated the Valley of Hinnom. This valley, now I'm going to read this whole thing here. Uh, back when, remember Molech? I mean, I think all of, everybody understands who the Molech was, that, the god that they sacrificed their children to. This valley was the place where were cast all kinds of filth with the carcasses of beasts and the unburied bodies of criminals who had been executed. Continual fires, continual fires were kept burning there to consume them. Here children were burned by wicked kings and sacrificed to the heathen god Moloch. So there it is, the Valley of Hinnom. <coughs> okay, with its continual fires, it's used as a symbol by our Lord of the final hell fire, the place of punishment of the wicked, the lake of fire, as, as Colin just mentioned. Note the vividness of the words the prophet Isaiah uses in describing this tophet, which is ordained for the king, a possible reverence, reference to Antichrist and Satan who dwells in. It is deep and large. And there's a scripture I know, and we, we may get to it here in a minute, that hell has literally enlarged itself. Remember that scripture? It says, The breath of the Lord like a stream of brimstone does kindle it. Wow. How, 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 how much is it like the scripture there in Revelation 14, 10, and 20, 10? So there, remember the Pastor Russell with the Jehovah's Witness? Anybody remember that back in the 1912, 1913, 1914? Three years in a row he said the Lord is coming on this date. Night came and went. And he said, oh, I've received more light. It's going to be next year. Finally, after three years of doing that, no one believed him anymore. And, uh, but he, here's something. He, it's in your book here. He, he's, uh, it's known by various names. Jehovah's Witness, Millennial Drawn, Watchtower Bible. Track Society, People's Pulpit, International Bible Students Association. In his oft-repeated sermon to hell and back, this was some sermon that a lot of people thought was, I guess, a good one or something, tried to disprove the existence of a place of detention and torment after death by saying that Sheol in the Old Testament meant the grave instead of, a, you know, like a grave, like literally. You know, he, he would but they already had a word for grave. Exactly, exactly. So he was, he was a fruitcake, <laughs> let me say it that way. So the two words, Sheol and Queber, are as different as day and night. And as to their meaning and usage, clearly divergent. The former belonging to the realm of the soul after it has left the body, and the latter belonging to the realm of physical death. Sheol is never used in the plural. The body never goes there. It is never located on the face of the earth. An individual Sheol is never spoken of. Man never put another into it. Man never digs or makes it. And man never touches it. The exact opposite, though, is true of Queber. We haven't the space to examine carefully the the proof text, but let the student look up the following passages, and it's something you can do if you'd like to later, where the word sheol is used in the original Hebrew, uh, strong, wrongly translated, sometimes hell and grave. Then let him look up the following passages where the word quiber is used. Then let him apply the key to the use of the words in the immediately preceding paragraph, and he will readily discover how different these two concepts are. So if you want to do that, feel free to st study that out. You know, I'd encourage you to. be neat to know. So, the age to come. We're finally to, drum roll, dun, 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 number seven in the dispensation. Yay. Yay. The dispensation of divine government. How many like the dispensation we're in? It's pretty good, isn't it? Grace. God's even got something better than that, huh? Yeah. But wait, there's more. Yeah, there's more. Can you imagine walking on streets of gold? Picking fruit, all 12 manner of fruit from one tree and walls of jasper and all kinds of stones. And, whew, 
Wow. So, on page 82 in my book, it is the plan of God and His great redemptive purpose for the universe to head up all things in Christ. I believe that. He is the head. Amen. The keys of all the life and history of God's great household are in His hands. Salvation is infinitely broader in scope than escape from God's righteous wrath upon the sinner. God, having accomplished our redemption in the cross, purposes in the ages to come to show the exceeding riches, Paul said it, of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. There's a reward day coming, isn't there? For all the stuff we go through in this life, He has a home prepared. So many songs have been written about I have a home prepared just beyond the blue and on and on just a I could, a lot of them taken from John 14 where he says let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me for in my father's house are many mansions I go to prepare a place for you so <clears throat> kind of hoarse tonight I've been talking too much today okay uh, under the law with its ordinances of divine service it is seen in types and shadows at present in this dispensation of grace the kingdom is actually being established in its spiritual phase the kingdom of God is now even though it in its earthly elements and because of Satan's activities to corrupt it as we saw in the parables of Matthew 13 remember those seven parables there's a mixture of good and evil the wheat and the tares yeah, there you go so there is a distorted dispensational teaching again I wrote here in my book wrong just so I'd make sure I knew that we're talking about something okay, that's wrong. 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 <laughs> Which says that John the Baptist and Christ himself offered to the Jews the kingdom in outward manifestation. And had they accepted him, it would have been immediately set up and the Roman government would have been superseded by Christ's universal kingdom. Crazy, huh? This teaching further says that in view of the rejection of Christ by the Jewish nation, the kingdom was postponed. This could not have been the import of the kingdom of heaven as announced by John, for the cross was in the plan and purpose of God from before the foundation of the world. So that blows that theory, doesn't it? It was inevitable. It was, it was, When the, when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they became sick, Moses was ordered to, to, to create a cross with a serpent on it. Yep. Thousand, a thousand years before the Roman Empire ever thought of crucifixion. And we're supposed to believe that the cross was never a part of the picture. Exactly. Even though Paul himself said, he took the curse upon himself. I was listening to, this, listening to this today. He took the curse upon himself to be the curse, to take the sin for us because it says in Scripture, cursed is the man who is hung on a tree. Yeah. He who knew no sin became sin. Exactly. Yeah. So. And you're, they're, yeah. they're seriously trying to say that the cross had nothing to do with it? I'm glad he doesn't name who it is. He just says there's a distorted dispensational teaching. I want to know who it is so I can say, don't listen to this person. Exactly. We need to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Anyway, because of the cross, even John himself pointed Christ out to the first disciples as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If Christ were offering to the Jews the kingdom in outward manifestation, the Roman government would so have understood it for Christ never equivocated. He would have been guilty of sedition and treason, and Pilate would never have pronounced him guiltless. God had it all planned out, didn't he? The terms kingdom of heaven in Matthew and kingdom of God in Mark and Luke are identical in meaning and import and refer to this present dispensation of the gospel when the kingdom is being proclaimed and those who accept enter into the kingdom by the new birth. The kingdom of God is being established in this present time actually and spiritually. God is not being glorified in the earth 
as he should be and will be, the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is yet unanswered. But it will surely be answered, and the kingdom of God will be manifested outwardly in glory on the earth. This is the period just ahead of us, the millennium, right? Wow. Everybody knows what millennium means, right? thousand years. It's from two Latin words, milli and annum, which means year. Milli meaning thousand. This period is mentioned six times in one passage of scripture. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 7. It is the time when Satan will be bound and Christ will reign on earth. In Daniel's vision <coughs> excuse me, of the image and of the beast, he saw a succession of four kingdoms we talked about this preached about it not too long ago world powers followed by the stone kingdom this kingdom is set up at the revelation of christ from heaven to destroy antichrist and to judge the nations got a comment oh okay the form of government what will it be theocracy theocracy uh the ultimate theocracy because Christ will be at the head of it. Exactly. It'll be the earth will not be ruled as a monarchy, not as a great democracy, not as an autocracy, autocracy, but as a theocracy. God himself will rule in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There seems to be much evidence in the scripture that David, of whose line Christ came in the flesh, will have a part and the government is restored Israel as a prince of vicegerent. Now, I didn't look that one up. Vicegerent. Somebody looked that up. V-I-C-E-G-E-R-E-N-T. Christ distinctly promised to the disciples that they would what? Sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Around the portals of heaven, how many... How many people are seated there with the angels? Anybody know that? 24. So a lot of people think it will be the 12 disciples from the New Testament and then the 12, remember the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. You know, Benjamin and Gad and Dan and Reuben and uh, there was a whole bunch of them. Um, so... Vicegerent is the official administrative deputy of a ruler or head of state. Vice, from the Latin meaning in place of, and genere, uh, to carry on conduct. So like a vice president. Almost, yeah. Similar, okay. But more similar to like a, to like a vice magistrate. Like a, or cabinet. That he, a vice judge. Okay, all right. So there you go. Y'all have learned two. You've got two new words in your vocabulary tonight. That, that's worth combing your hair and coming here tonight, wasn't it? <laughs> Big words. The world's capital will not be Rome, Vienna, London, Washington, Paris, or any of these great cities. It'll be Jerusalem. Hallelujah. At present, apparently insignificant, ancient, and even despised. It will be restored and rebuilt, the new Jerusalem. It will be actually fulfilled the Psalms, psalmist vision when he said, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in the mountains of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. The city of the great king, God is known in her palaces for a refuge. We're about to... Okay, I thought we were a little further. Oh, yeah, we've got a couple more pages. We're going to get this one round up here. Hang on. Grab your seatbelt. The, the millennial land, it's, it's going to show us a picture here in your book here on the next page after this. A grant of land. And I've really never, uh, I remember studying this when we went through this a little bit. I don't think we spent a lot of time on this part, did we, John? The first time through. This graph or this picture of... Uh -uh, I didn't think so because I, I thought, well, man, that's, I don't think we really talked a lot about that. But it talks here about uh, the grant of land promised to Abraham back in Genesis 15. 
and it lays the boundaries here, the river of Egypt, the Nile, uh, the small stream flowing out of the peninsula of Sinai through the river Euphrates, uh, Ezekiel and Deuteronomy uh, talk some about it, plumb out to the Indian Ocean. This, the desert shall blossom as the rose is the promise of scripture and the greatly increased numerical enlargement of Israel during the millennium is prophesied in Isaiah 60, 22. The narrow strip of territory between the Mediterranean Sea on the west and the Jordan on the Dead Sea on the east. So, all right, turn your page and you hear, you hear, you see, <clears throat> you hear the rustling of your page as you turn the page, but you see uh, this oblation of holy territory. All right, you can look on with Jeff if you want to call him. The Levite's land is 24 by 60 miles. The priest's land is 24 by 60 miles, and the temple is in that uh, demographic. It's going to be over one mile square. There's some cultivated land. There's a city with suburbs that is 12 miles, and then more cultivated land. It shows the prince's portion on each side in the river that's going to flow straight from the temple. So that's in the millennium. Okay. And then here again in Ezekiel 48, it talks about the allotment of territory. Uh, Twelve tribes of Israel uh, in broadband extending from east to west, beginning with the tribe of Dan on the north uh, and ending with Gad in the south between the tribes of Judah, Benjamin. This territory is 25,000 reeds or approximately... 60 miles square. That would be like from here to Weatherford, Oklahoma. It's about 60 miles. And then I don't know how far south. It would be way past Chickasha, I'll tell you that. It's a pretty good block of land in which will be located the Millennial City in the southern area. North of it, the temple enclosure, about a mile square. Land for the priests, Levites. Chapter 60 through 65 of Isaiah also gives some pictures. Ezekiel 47, 22. 23 declares that the Gentiles shall have inheritance in the allotment of territory to the 12 tribes on an equal footing as they dwell together in unity, both Jew and Gentile. And then he talks about the Millennial River. Again, a lot of this, uh, if you want to go back and study some of this deeper. called the, what is it? The Millennial River. <clears throat> so, however, in its primary significance, it surely is descriptive of a literal river flowing out from under the new temple. Now, I did read an article several years ago about that some archaeologists found the something uh, under the earth, like it's the groundwork is already being laid for this river to flow. I read this, not probably less in the last five or some kind of a deal, yeah, where it, it's already yeah, I remember reading the article about that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, it's part of that Build Back Better. No. <laughs> build Back Better. The healing waters of this river caused the Dead Sea to be transformed from its present saltness so that fish abound in its waters. Fruitfulness in great abundance is produced both banks of the river. The channel for this river to flow eastward, impossible at present, is doubtless made by the upheaval which occurs at the time the Lord returns to the Mount of Olives, causing the mountain to cleave in the middle and to move northward and southward. The writer has no difficulty in believing that a literal river can flow out from a new Say that, literal river. Can y'all say that? Literal river. Literal river. <laughs> say that seven times. From beneath the temple, for until recent years, the city of Springfield, Missouri, has been a, supplied with water from one great spring, which is really a small river flowing out from underneath a limestone cliff. The whole Ozark region of Missouri is honeycombed with limestone caves 
and which are found underground springs and rivers. And that's in this article. Again, I wish I could remember something about it. It's been a while. But there it is. It's been 10 years then, hasn't it? I knew it had been a long time when I read something about that. There you go. It's already. Okay, one more paragraph, and I'll let y'all out. The prophet Zechariah sees two streams flowing from Jerusalem, one toward the former eastern sea, the Dead Sea, and the second toward the hinder, the western sea, or the Mediterranean. The purpose of this western branch could be to provide access to the sea, making Jerusalem a seaport city. Such a facility is now existent in Houston, Texas, where the dredged-out bayou from the Gulf of Mexico and the enlarged basin for loading and unloading ocean-going vessels makes Houston actually a seaport city. And she's probably, what, 50 miles from the, from the edge of Texas, right? The boundaries, 40, 50 miles? Maybe 30. Yeah, maybe 30. It's pretty good, pretty good ways to the Gulf of Mexico. I know that. Wow. So, a lot of stuff tonight. We're going to finish this up. Uh, we actually, uh, what do we like here? Not, not that much, yeah. Not that much. We will finish this up next time. That will be on, uh, today is what, the 28th? About the 10th or 11th, somewhere around there. And then we'll have our graduating class. Everybody got the text on that? It will be uh, all... Jeff and uh, Jen and Golden Jeremiah will be here, and they're going to be sharing some. And I did it again, didn't I? <laughs> Jeremy, hello. You can you can kill it back there, Colin or Jen. Uh, but yeah, uh, looking forward to that big graduation celebration, and uh, can't wait, can't wait. Proud of you all. You have you have endured a lot the last. How long has it taken you, Jen? Two years? Huh? Two years. Okay, so we have sped it up because, John, yours was nearly three years, wasn't it? Yeah, but you guys were meeting once a month. Yeah, just kind of when Juan's schedule 